Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you joining us online, good morning to you also. If you have your Bibles, we are in the book of Acts chapter 13 this morning. It's a long section, so we cannot, we can, but we won't stand to read verses 13 through 41. We will only read standing verses 26 through 33. You got all that? All right. If you have your Bibles open. Please stand for the reading of God's word, verses 26 through 33, Acts chapter 13. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers Because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when he had fulfilled, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he has raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Please be seated. Prophecy has a point. That's the title of this morning's message. A dual meaning to that. First, well, at least my intended meaning. First is, uh, it's not to be a hobby. I mean, it can have qualities about it that match having a hobby. You like to do it. You try to do it as often as you can. But... Prophecy is not meant to be a hobby. It is supposed to penetrate the life. It has a point to it, and it has has a point on it. It is to tell us things that God wants us to hear so that we could be more Christ-like and more usable for the kingdom. And unfortunately, I think a lot of folks have turned prophecy just into that, a hobby. You can avoid a lot of conviction by just talking about what's going to happen one day. And uh, sort of neglect the things that you need to hear right now. We were just singing the hymn Amazing Grace. And the keynote of that hymn is saved a wretch like me. That's conviction. You get that from the Holy Spirit. And he has done something about this. He has taken wretches such as I, such as you. And embraced us. Loves us has made a place in heaven for us that we would be wretched no more. Uh, to hear the prophecies that Paul is preaching to these uh, his Jewish audience and some Gentiles also, he was saying to them, it's time to act on these prophecies. These things about the coming Messiah have been fulfilled, many of them, and you had to do something with it. It's not enough to just read the, hear the scripture read and, and go ooh and ah, and, and it doesn't get into the life. Paul said this, 
that there were those who were always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They had just made themselves lifetime students and not servants. Just always learning, but never getting the point. Uh, you, You cannot, or it's not advisable, to just read the Bible, study the Bible, be around sermons of the Bible, and not digest any of it. You have to digest it. You have to give it time. You have to think it through. Meditate on these things. I have uh, enjoyed this about getting older in the faith, maturing in the faith. Uh, Study has its time for sure. But to ponder what you've just studied, to think about it through the day, to meditate on it, a very special part of our faith. And there is a lot of fruit to be had. And so, again, prophecy has a point. And and this is what Paul is is doing before us with his congregation, listening to him preach. He's saying, Christ has come. The prophets have spoken about this very thing. Now, what are you going to do with it? And so we look now at verse 13. Now, when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, They came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Well, from the island of Cyprus, uh, a 170-mile trip with ship and on foot, uh, rough traveling. In fact, by the time Paul gets to the region of Galatia, he's likely very sick physically. And we're we're not... told that he mentioned, uh, ministered in Perga, he does on the way back, we get that in Acts chapter 14, and, and because he was sick, that might have been part of it. Mark, who it is said here in verse 13, departed from them, well, he's 430 miles from home, he's a young man, uh, likely in his uh, latter 20s, early 30s. Luke is careful to protect Mark in that he omits the reasons why Mark left. We can deduce from the argument that will take place later between Paul and Barnabas that Paul did not feel his reasons for abandoning them were justifiable. Was it the food? It would have been for me. I'd be like, I can't eat this stuff. I'm going home. Maybe it was the peril of bandits or of, of travel, uh, again, the seas and those riggedy boats that uh, they, they traveled in, at least from, from our perspective. Maybe it was the climate. Maybe the customs just got to him. A combination of all of them, just being away from home. Or maybe he, too, was unhealthy because of uh, maybe the water that they were drinking or something like that. Unlike Demas, who does leave Paul, later on in Paul's ministry, we know that Mark will be restored. So he leaves them and he he departs. Ministry is too hard for him at this point and he heads home. But Demas, he leaves and we never hear of him again. And this John Mark, he had three dynamos in his life, three men that invested in him, Barnabas, Paul, and Peter. Imagine having that a part of your faith. Uh, In the early years of my ministry, I spent a lot of time ministering to some men, and it just, you know, wasn't rewarding. It was at the time, but then how things turned out, it was disappointing. And you you can't let that uh, get to you. Here, Mark, he made the most out of it. 
And as I think about, you know, when we're faced with struggles and we want to get away from the problem, uh, that makes perfect sense many times. But sometimes that's not what God wants. Sometimes God wants us to face the problems. Abraham, at the time, he was Abram, before God had uh, revised his name, <clears throat> or changed it, I should just say. He, um, Abraham, he did what we're all prone to do, and that is seek relief from difficulties rather than profit from the trial, from the things that are bothering us. Genesis chapter 12, now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. Well, God never told him to go down to Egypt, and Abraham was a man that we know to be led by God. Abraham, depart from your father's house and get away from your people to a land that I will show you. And he, he went out going, he knew not where, because he's being led by the Spirit. But in this case, to get away from the famine, he decides to go to Egypt. He went to Egypt in his own strength and accomplished nothing. In fact, he picked up some baggage that he would have been better off without in the way of Hagar and other difficulties. It was not a good trip. And so, yeah, he wanted to get away from the troubles, but he had no leading to do this, and he should have remained where he were, and these lessons exist for our edification. Here, Paul... He is uh, being led by the Spirit, facing difficulties. And Mark, uh, he says, I'm out of this. Verse 14. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. Well, this is not the Antioch in Syria. This is one that is further inland in Turkey. And uh, one of the... Uh, Seleucus, one of Alexander the Great's, uh, one of his generals, Seleucus, he, uh, he, he built this city, and there are no less than 16 cities named Antioch. He named them after his father, Antiochus. And so you may come across that quite a bit uh, in history uh, if you look at the things that were taking place in those days. But for us, Galatians chapter 1, to the churches in Galatia, because this is now the region of Galatia. Galatia was a territory, uh, not a single church. But there are no less than four churches that we read about in this Galatian region. Antioch of Pisidia, that where Paul and Barnabas have now arrived. Iconium, Lystra, Derby. Paul did a lot of ministry there. In fact, he was stoned in one of these cities. And as I mentioned, he may have been sick when he arrived here, Galatians 4.13, writing to the churches in that region. You know that because of my physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at first. And so he gets there and he's sick. Uh, he makes a comment, you would have, you know, taken out your eyes and give them to me. And it was probably a figure of speech, meaning you, you guys were just so loving, so caring for me when I was there. Later, when he gets back after this trip to this region that we're now considering in Acts 13, he writes a letter addressing the corruption of the gospel message that had then followed his, his time there. He and Barnabas, others had come behind to undo Paul's work. And so in the Galatian letter, he writes, 
you, <clears throat> pardon me, Galatians 1.6, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. So, <clears throat> pardon me again. So there, Paul does all this work in the region of Galatia, and then Satan goes behind him and does his work too. And that's why we have the Galatian letter. And the Galatian letter is, is not, um, uh, he is not making them feel comfortable. He asked them, who has bewitched you, you foolish Galatians, having begun in the spirit, you now being made perfect in the flesh. It's such a rookie move that is carried out by seasoned Christians often. They you start out in the spirit of God, and then they, I didn't get uh, tired of waiting for God, tired of doing without, and they begin to try to do things in their own strength. Uh, they, they, they work in not at the spirit, but the flesh. And it's, uh, you get a lot of visible things done that way. You just don't get much spiritual fruit from it. Well, it says here in verse 14, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. Well, the Sabbath, the Saturday for us, is when the Jews would assemble. Uh, he tried to always begin at the synagogues. It makes perfect sense. It was a rational decision. It should have been an easy fit. That's why it's so, so rational. They had the scripture, the Old Testament. Again, no New Testament yet. Not, not in print. But they, there was a New Testament being orally uh, spoken. But it just, again, was not... Uh, assembled into what we know as the Bible, as we have it today. But given their knowledge of the prophets who foretold about Messiah, and they told a lot about him, it, it should have been, a, you know, just a, a great success. Imagine going somewhere where there are a lot of Christians, but there's no Bible teaching. And you go there and you say, I'm, I'm going to start teaching verse by verse, expository teaching, and they're going to love it. And you get there, and they don't. <laughs> they kind of turn on you for it. Because you start smashing their icons. You start going against their habits that are outside of Scripture and often contrary to the will of God. And Paul is facing that here. In Romans chapter 1, he wrote to that church years later, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also the Greek. For the Jew first. It made, again, they were the custodians of the Old Testament scripture, which the New Testament was built upon. You know, we talk about an imperf imperfect translations. All of them are. Christ used an imperfect translation of the Old Testament. I mean, largely it was the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation from the Hebrew. And so this is not something that should unnerve you. You should learn to understand how special uh, it is to have the word of God preserved over multiple cultures for uh, thousands of years, counting the Old Testament, and still make its points, all of them. They're inescapable. Uh, it is quite an accomplishment. But here, this logical step, which in life, in serving Christ, logical steps do not always produce logical conclusions. And it is because of people. Uh, it, it just makes you scratch your head sometimes. 
Uh, you don't want to become self-righteous and judgmental and harsh, but you must, you must face it. You can't sweep it under the rug. It is frustrating when things that make sense fail because of people and the people you're trying to help. Well, you've got to grow up and uh, just focus on what God is doing and the fruit that is coming out of it. Uh, I think that, you know, I, I, for a long time I've been preaching, when it's time to go to heaven and you turn your armor in, it should have dents and scuffs and burn marks, sweat, blood, tears. All of that should be on that armor. Uh, it is uh, certainly that kind of a, a life, a situation where we have the good news in the midst of a cursed world. But I, I never thought ministry would beat you up so much. And, and yet, and yet the joy of, ha I'm still standing, punk. I mean, so, you know, you've got to balance these things. And it's, it's okay. It's okay to tell God, I'm sick and tired of some of this stuff. And God will say, yeah, and what? <laughs> because he's not, hey, look, I don't know. He, he's always encouraged me, but I don't remember him ever babying me. I don't remember God once, now, now, it'll be okay. <laughs> it's, it's like, yeah, well, you know, I never promised you a rose garden. Uh, so anyway, back to, oh, I'm sorry. Does anybody here think that ministry should be nothing but fun? You who work in the child, children's ministry and you got that one little kid. <laughs> or, or maybe just, you know, somewhere else you serve in the church and it's just something that, you know, oh man, I don't want to do this. Well, that is ministry. That's what it looks like. Rejoice in that. Now, here's how I rejoice when, when I'm faced with things I don't like. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to him. I love this stuff. I love it. There are certain things I love about ministry. And there are certain other things that I wish I didn't have to do. But that's okay. I know who I work for, and I know he's always going to be with me because he always has been with me. And uh, you, you and I are both encouraged. Anyway, back to verse 15. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. I like how that's phrased. Well, the Jews had a schedule of reading in the synagogues, and still do many of them, where they try to read through the Torah, the first five books of the law, uh, every year. And at the end of the year, they, they, it repeats itself. And uh, the rulers of the synagogue were to keep this on, on course, and maintain order. And they would um, invite, after someone read a passage of the law, they would invite someone to come up and uh, expound upon it, to, to talk about it. Well, here they've got two rabbis, at least two learned men in the law, Barnabas and Paul. Paul, certainly a rabbi. Their garb likely would have indicated this to them. And they, they asked them to come up and share from what was just read. And it was likely out of Exodus or Deuteronomy. And we know that because of where Paul starts off with his uh, exposition. So now, verse 16, Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. Well, I really like this. I'll start from the bottom of the verse 
first. You who fear God, those were the Gentiles who feared God, but did not go so far, feared the God of the Jews, Yahweh, but did not go as far as becoming circumcised. They were receptive to the truths that this was the creator. They were sick of the idolatry and all of its junk, and so they were looking for truth. And these are the ones that are actually going to, to get the point of the prophecies that Paul is going to uh, bring up in his sermon. Luke was not... Now, here's what I, I find fascinating about this verse. Luke was not present with them at this time. He got this information secondhand. Well, in other words, Paul may have told him, Barnabas, others there would have told him about this. And what stands out is, then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, why would he include that? Why is that important to put in? Evidently, this is an outstanding gesture. Some eyewitness retold this story to Luke. Someone recalled the moment. Someone was moved by all that took place. And it began with this gesture of the hand. They could still see Paul do this. Luke is known for his careful research. Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, he says, look, I looked into this stuff. And I've, I, eyewitnesses, and he, you know, he's a, he's a physician. He is a medical doctor. And this little detail, preserved by the Holy Spirit, this snapshot in time, has a point. I'm not sure what that point is yet. Maybe you can meditate on it, <clears throat> consider it, and come up with something. Uh, <clears throat> But, I, but it stands out to me because uh, all of God's word is vital uh, and it is there for us to ponder. So he begins this message with a gesture and uh, verse 17, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt and with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. And so he's talking about the Exodus. Again, likely that was where the reading was in the synagogue that Saturday. And he is emphasizing Israel's appointment as the people of God, as the bringers of the light, the custodians of the word, why he starts at the synagogues whenever he can. And the Gentiles, of course, they're listening to this. They're not resisting this. They're not saying, what about us? They want the truth of God, and they're not protesting about how God does a thing because there was nothing to protest. And so beginning with this history of the Jews, he demonstrates, Paul is demonstrating that the preaching of Christ is not just something they took out of thin air. He's not a Johnny-come-lately. He's not a self-appointed Messiah. He's saying our Bible has talked about this man. He's going to lay it out more so that they understand why he is making this connection. He is going on to say that this man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, is the Messiah, and he has fulfilled the things, many of the things, that the prophets have said. Well, Jesus himself said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. And that he did, and that he is still doing. So, ensuring that they understood 
that he is introducing a individual that is qualified to follow, unlike anybody else. Again, their Messiah, whom their forefathers and the prophets spoke about, wrote about, preached about, and they knew those scriptures. They knew those scriptures by heart. They were a part of their entire lives from the time they were very small even to their, uh, to, to, to they left this life. They knew these things. And so he's going to spell it out for them. Jesus is the Christ that our scriptures have prophesied about, verse 18. Now for a time, about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. I, I like how that's phrased too. He put up with them. Because God puts up with us. Because he's merciful. Not because we're so special. The funny thing about not being so special, the funny thing about uh, humility is that there will be times where you won't feel so humble. (laughs) When you will feel better than others, or at least tempted to. And uh, it's an ongoing work. God's tolerance is God's grace in action. And uh, how about us? We're supposed to be Christ-like. Christ is God the Son. How tolerant are we with others who need grace? Proverbs 19, the discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. Yeah, there's just things that just, you know, just leave it alone. Just take the hit. It's okay. And learn how to do that the right way. I mean, there are some transgressions you cannot overlook. They have to be dealt with. But then there are lesser ones. Uh, and, and they're best oftentimes just dismissed. The Jews, they boasted about their rich spiritual, spiritual heritage. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the prophets. They boasted about these things. Often overlooking the faithlessness of their forefathers. Leaving out that part of their heritage. And so they boasted to a fault. They had things to certainly rejoice in but not, not the way it had, had ended up. And so Paul reminds them that their scripture does not overlook the faithlessness and the ways of their forefathers, but God is merciful nonetheless. And so he says, yeah, your, your forefathers, they were, they were in the wilderness, and God overlooked much of what they did. He tolerated it. Verse 19 and when he had destroyed seven nations in, the, in the nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. And so he's, he's laying out their history to them. His audience is loving this. They, they, they're listening to this. They say, man, he has command of the scripture. Well, that's not enough. It's not enough to be impressed by the speaker. It's not enough to follow the points being made. The prophecies are there to act upon. And if you're just always learning, but you can just never do it, you're, you're like a soldier that can march, but he just knows nothing, he just has, knows nothing about his weapons. And, and that's a very big part of his, uh, his, his role, his position. And so it is with us. Uh, so what? You have the sharpest sword if it never comes out the scabbard. So what? You know the word of God. But you never use it to edify, to lead someone to Christ. Not all of us can lead someone to Christ. We just, not everybody is, is just given that opportunity. But we can contribute in some way, and that is for all of us. 
Actually, let me reword that. We all can, just that we all don't. And uh, I don't mean to sound condemning in that statement. It just sometimes doesn't work out that way for everyone. But coming back to this, when he mentions what God had done for them, referring to Deuteronomy 7, the seven nations in the land, you know, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites, the Adasites, all the people that were a problem there, uh, God dealt with them. They could not have overcome those people, and God points that out in Deuteronomy 7. They were mightier than you, but you won because of God. And so they're pleased with this. In verse 20, the audience is, After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet, in verse 21, and afterward they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. The Gentiles got to be saying, man, I wish we had something like that. And well, well, you do. You've got the Christ now. That's where this is going to end up. But from Othniel to Samuel, the period of Judges, he says it's 450 years. Now, there's a lot of discussion about that, a lot of formula uh, or equations to come up with that number. The Jewish historian Josephus makes this comment that the temple construction started 592 years after the Exodus. And he says it was four years into Solomon's reign. Well, we have no reason to doubt, to doubt this. He's closer to the events than we are. Well, if you take those 592 years from the Exodus to the building of the temple and you factor out 40 years in the wilderness, the 80 years of Saul and David, the 20 years of conquest and, and stuff in between, you come up with 452 years thereabout. You give a take. And Paul is rounding off the number. And so there's nothing inaccurate about that, uh, not to me. Verse 22, and when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man, a man after my own heart, who will do my will. David twice refused to remove Saul. He had two opportunities to kill him because Saul was trying to kill David. So it would have been justifiable from that perspective, but not before God in the heart of David. God eventually removed Saul. In Chronicles, it tells us God killed him. Well, he used the Philistines to do it on Mount uh, Gilboa, but it was because Saul had turned to witchcraft and had just become just so horrible. And he lays it out in First, First Chronicles 10, verses 13 and 14, if you want to look at that after service. Uh, so what a remarkable man. What would you have done if someone was trying to kill you and you have an opportunity to take them out? But you know that this isn't what your calling is. Verse 23 from this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. And he's talking about David's, the line of David. Now, he leaps a thousand years from the time of David. He's going to come to John the Baptist, and that's about a thousand-year gap. And there the prophets, the major and minor prophets of our Bible, uh, penned their prophecies. But God promised David that his throne would last forever. And he can only do that with someone who is eternal. 
and that is Christ. And we're going to get to scriptures that just lay this out for us again and again. And so the meaning is the Messiah would come from David, and he would be the ultimate king. That's Paul's point, that Jesus fulfilled these prophecies. To this day, the Jews can't tell you what tribe one of them comes from. They cannot identify their Messiah without knowing the tribes. And they've missed the timetable. Uh, they will, uh, this will all come back in the days of Antichrist. Technology will get them back, and there will be those Jews who we know what tribe they come from, but we're not quite there yet. Although it is, it's in the works right now. DNA has uh, the discovery of how to uh, understand DNA will re- has really helped with that. And the world thinks it's all about them. God has opened the knowledge of DNA for them. Well, they benefit from it. But the bottom line, it's open so that God can mark the, the uh, 144,000 Jews that will be evangelical during the Great Tribulation period. Uh, incidentally, you know, uh, Amos said, you know, you talk about the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. This is not a good day. This is going to be a day of judgment, horrific judgment. Well, we Christians, do we, do we do something similar? Yes. Oh, the rapture, the rapture. Well, the rapture signals tribulation on earth such as never been. It's going to be really bad. And I think we should be mindful of that. I'm more interested in getting people qualified to be raptured than to be raptured myself. And, uh, you know... Uh, uh, I, I, you know, I, that, that, that's just how I see it. And you know, I, I like being right because I find it pretty dumb to like being wrong. Well, verse 25. And as John was finishing his course, oh wait, sorry, verse 24. After, after the time of David, uh, John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Well, John's call was to prepare the way for Messiah and to get them ready to receive their Messiah. They had to face their own sins. And so he calls them to repentance. And water baptism was to, (laughs) for them, this, this saying, I am a sinner. And ours has that in it too, but more. In verse 25, and as John was finishing his course, he said, who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, There comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Verse 26, men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. Well, if you're reading along with me, you're following the punctuation, the quotation marks. You know where John has ended. The quote of John has has stopped, and Paul then starts addressing his audience. In verse 25, he's talking about John. He's quoting John. And then in that verse, after that verse, in verse 26, he now addresses his audience. He says, okay, that's the prophecy of the last prophet of Israel. You knew John, the baptizer, to be a prophet. Well, you're going to have to do something with what John was preaching, won't you? Makes perfect sense. And yet, most of them have not. Paul is attaching his message to the prophets of Judaism. He is saying to them, this Christ that we follow is not a sect. 
It's not something we've concocted. It is tied in. At some point, the Bible promises Messiah will come. Well, he has come. What is so difficult to understand about that? Do you think these prophecies just are there and they're never going to be fulfilled? At some point, it's going to be sandals on the ground. And they were in Christ. And so this logical first step to preach this to the Jews, the fulfillment of their prophecies. Peter did the same thing, Acts chapter 3. Those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. I think when we share the gospel with people, it's okay to use prophecy also in our message, and the pre- predictive prophecy, end-time prophecy. But you've got to tie it in. You've got to say these things. You've got to make a call. If our God is the God who gives us prophecy, and he is that sovereign to do so, wouldn't it be crazy to ignore everything else he has to say? Doesn't it make sense that there's a point to his prophetic word, and it is to me personally? Peter, when he wrote his letter, he said, So we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. There's an understatement for you. You do well to hear what the scripture has to say. All of the scripture is prophetic. Not all of it is predictively prophetic. And, but they're, but they're, it's inseparable. It's all, it all, all belongs to the same canon. Verse 27. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. Well, he's, he's, this is just what you call an anointed sermon. Uh, he's still saying you should have known, they should have known their Messiah, these leaders who tout uh, being uh, doctors of the law. Well, there's precedence for this in their own law. Hosea, the prophet, chapter 4, God speaking through him, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. This is true of Christians. There are Christians that don't know the Bible, but they, I'm a Christian. And they do things, and you say, you know what? The Bible says, don't do this. It's right here. And, and oh, and then they continue to do it anyway. There's no, not out of weakness. I don't know what it is out of. But anyway, he says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being priests for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God. I also will forget your children. Boy, that's predictive. That's far-reaching. And that prophecy has much fulfillment in the days of the apostles. When they were turning their back on inescapable truths, they, they had the kind of ignorance that led to guilt. There's, a, there's an ignorance where, okay, you, you're still wrong, but we understand your motives were not wrong. And then there is an ignorance that is guilty because uh, the motives are wrong. And I'll come to some of this. He says here in verse 27, Nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath have fulfilled them in condemning him. And that's where Paul is saying their scriptures 
their scriptures, their scriptures was packed with predictions of Messiah's coming. And in these predictions, in these things about Messiah, they characterized his life, his death, and beyond that death. They were without excuse. Isaiah 9, Isaiah 53, Psalm 2, Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Daniel 9, Psalm 69, Zechariah 13. That's just some of the Messianic prophecies. What is their excuse? Well, you don't want to be too, you know, again, self-righteous and judgmental. But you can't turn your back on the facts either. They ignorantly fulfilled the prophecies that they knew by heart. Because they lost the point. The, the, the Bible study has a point. It's supposed to penetrate. If you just sit there listening and say, I don't follow. Well, what's your problem? Why don't you follow the word? Because you're not in the word. That's why. You should be in the scripture. You don't have to be, you know, you, quit, you can't quit your job and just stay home and read the Bible. Although there are those that are always learning and never coming into the knowledge. They still do things. That are prohibited. Their ignorance was a guilty ignorance. How could they have missed their Messiah with all that's written about him? And they're reading it every Sabbath. Mishandling of scripture. Part of their history. Second Chronicles chapter 15. For a long time Israel has been without the true God. Without a teaching priest. And without law. Well, the prophet said there'd be a famine, but not of food, of God's word. Why? Because he wasn't going to cast pearl before swine. If they weren't going to handle his word properly, then they weren't going to get his word. And here we are in America. We have the word of God everywhere. There are other places, there are no Bibles. Where, where in Yemen can you go down and buy a Bible, and a, you know, a study Bible? Where is downtown Yemen? Have you could go into a store and say, where can I find a good study Bible? <laughs> you got anything here by A.W. Tozier or Dave Hunt? Uh, you'd probably be stoned shortly after. But here, we've got the word. And we need to tell people, why should you get to hear the gospel message over and over and over and reject it? Over and over and over. And then there are other people that don't get to hear it once. Well, the tribulation period is going to change all that. But it's going to be hard. Listening to men without listening to God. That's how they got there. They listened to men talk about the scriptures without listening to God. Until finally the men just talked about the men who talked about the men who talked about the scripture. The Mishnah and the Talmud are evidence of these things. Why did they need the Mishnah and the Talmud? They had the scripture. And it's just practiced in Christianity too. Or Christendom, I should say. The lowly fishermen, they knew Christ. The detestable tax collectors, many of them came to Christ. What about some of the outcast women? If you knew what kind of woman it was that was washing your feet, you wouldn't have any part of this. Well, Simon, I got something to say to you too. That's how Jesus responded to that. Jesus read his mind. Here he is, the woman... This outcast woman is weeping over the Christ because of his mercy and his love for her. Genuine love. And there's this Pharisee, all smug about the whole thing. And Christ says, from the moment I came in here, you've not shown me any affection. Listen, you know, in those days, you talk about you know, washing the feet. 
Well, there were animals all over the place. I don't mean people. I don't mean metaphorically. I mean, there were... That was funny. Uh, you know. Anyway, you, you had livestock. And what, do, what does livestock do? They make a mess of things. Then we eat them for it. All right. Even the devil recognized he was the Holy One. We know who you are, the Holy One of Israel. Why did they miss it? Matthew chapter 8. And I say to you that many will come from the east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's saying to this, you, you, got, you got the scriptures, you call yourself custodians of the scripture, and you're not even getting the point of them because here I am right in front of you. Doing things nobody else can do in Yahweh's name. Violating no part of the law, upholding all of it. And you still can't connect the dots because you don't want to. Man, that's hard. By unbelief, the Jews fulfilled their own prophecies against themselves. We beheld him. We did not esteem him. By rejecting the one they said they were looking for, they executed him. Matthew 22, Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken. You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. This is a routine practice nowadays. I have noticed that there seems to be a movement of expository, a fresh movement of expository teaching in other churches. If it is genuine, I certainly applaud it. I hope it is genuine. Because without it, we will be those who don't get the point from God's word a word that says there are consequences to missing the point Scripture is laying out. There's no excuse for this. Scripture was in harmony with Jesus of Nazareth being Messiah. Why weren't the rest of the people? Verse 28. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. So the religious leaders who had the Scriptures use the courts of justice to withhold justice and to execute a foe, to be their hitman. This is crazy. And then go to the hour of prayer right after. Go to morning prayer, go to afternoon prayer, go to evening prayer while they're having an innocent man executed because he will not respect them as religious authorities in spite of all the dirt that they were doing. Verse 29, sin can mess somebody up so badly. I mean, look at King David. I mean, just he's such a dynamo and he gets tripped up. And yet, where sin abounded, grace did much more. Again, don't ever forget, the Messianic kingdom in the millennial reign is directly associated with King David. How do you get to be that ain't associated with me or you? Uh, this, is a special, this is a special arrangement that teaches us so much about God's goodness, His grace towards sinners, not looking to condemn, looking to give every opportunity. But this, this is the condemnation that men, the light is coming to the world, but men love darkness because their deeds are evil. No excuse. Verse 29. Now, when oh, I read verse 29, did I not? Yep, I did. 
Oh, well, I'll read it again. I don't know if I read it. What time is it? What is today? Is today Sunday? <laughs> now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Okay, using the tree ties it to the cross. He ties the cross to Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, where cursed is he who lies on a tree. And Paul is saying, listen, his execution on the cross is just what Moses was talking about. He became a curse for us. Now, he uses a tree because that is a, a timeless emblem. Simon the Cyrenian, he did not carry a tree, he carried a cross. But at the time Moses wrote those words, that, that form of execution was unknown to the Jews. Yet it is fulfilled in Christ. And so if you lived in the days of Christ and you saw him executed on a wooden post, you would say, there's the tree, because the scripture says those who are hung on a tree are a curse. And he became a curse for us. And the New Testament does not let that go. Tree is a timeless fit. Uh, cross, has is, is, is got a time stamp on it. But it's the same thing. I hope I clarified that for you. Um, verse 30. If you're not, then I'm just going to go to verse 30 and get away from the whole thing. God, but God raised him from the dead. This saying, God raised him from the dead does not exclude Jesus from being God the Son. It is inclusive of the Godhead. He was a willful participant and author and finisher of our faith. And he, Paul is saying, this is an act of God. It's not a phenomenon. No one in that audience shouted an objection at Paul's mention of the resurrection from the dead. How come? How come someone, oh, we don't believe that. The Greeks will do that. When he gets to Athens, once he mentioned the resurrection from the dead, ah, wait, that's it, that doesn't make any sense to us. Verse 31, he was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his, witness, who are his witnesses to the people, over a 40-day period. The writer to Hebrews, Paul says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, many of them being tortured to death, standing by what they saw. And what they saw was Christ crucified, Christ risen. And they weren't going to let anybody take. Our whole system of jurisprudence rests on witnesses. You take witnesses out, you, don't, you can't. You've got to have a whole bunch of other evidence which are form um, an inanimate witness. Verse 32, And we declare to you glad tidings that promise, uh, that promise which was made to our fathers. That Greek word glad tidings is where we get our English word, uh, the good news, the gospel. The gospel means the good news. Glad tidings here in the Greek literally means good news. And so that's a reference to the gospel. Verse 33, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And so there he's quoting Psalm 2. He is taking a verse that is usually applied to the incarnation, the birth of Christ, the coming of the Son of God into the world, and he is using it here to say... Uh, he was risen from the dead. 
He did not rot in a tomb, his body. And that is, uh, it's, it's wonderful to see. It's not uncommon in Scripture to, to come across dual fulfillments from a single verse, which then hold countless applications of truth. Verse 34, we're almost done. Uh, you're going to have to speed listen. And that he raised him up from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. What are the sure mercies of David? Well, the Bible tells us, Isaiah 55, 55 verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me here, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. That is the Messiah. That is the dynasty of David into the millennial kingdom. And we don't have time. Um, I'll just take one or two. Psalm 132.11, Yahweh has sworn in truth to David. He will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. Jeremiah 33.17, but thus says Yahweh, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And that has been fulfilled. And there are others that's sufficient. The mercies of David is God having Messiah come from him. Verse 35, Therefore he also says in another psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. In other words, his body will not rot in the tomb. Verse 36, For David, after he had served his own generation, by the will of God, fell asleep, a euphemism for he died, and was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. Verse 37, But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Well, nobody's objecting, objecting to the resurrection. That would be the only way to escape um, decomposition of the body. And so they had no excuse. Just think how many verses I'm not reading to you. <laughs> that, I'm just to make that point to say the Bible is just all over this. No other book in the world could tie in so many truths so frequently and flawlessly so. Verse 38 Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. Well, you've got to be God to forgive sins. When they broke through the ceiling and they lowered their, their um, invalid friend down, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. And oh boy, who is this guy to forgive sins? He says, you don't think I can forgive sins? Well, I'll tell you what, I'll demonstrate it. And the guy gets up and this invalid is no longer an invalid. He heals him. And so he's saying to them, well, let's see, you do that. If, you know, only God can do that. You're not God. You can't do it. I can do it because I'm God the Son. That's what it boils down to. The blood of Jesus Christ, his death on a cross, his exit from the tomb, his ascension into heaven, go beyond uh, everything that is found in the Old Testament into the New. So much more to say. Um, Got to wrap it up here. I do want to quote, now you know the verses, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Verse 39, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. That, that had to go off like a, like a time bomb. He just put down Moses. He just made Moses subordinate to Christ by him refuse salvation by him and you will be judged and condemned by him it is an imperative 
Now, these things of Moses, Hebrews 8. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Jeremiah the prophet said God would make a new covenant. Paul comes along and says, God did this because the first covenant, the Old Testament, wasn't enough. He's given us the New Testament, and it is in Christ. You can only have the new covenant by the blood of Christ. The first covenant came by the blood of animals. This one by the blood of Christ. New Testament, doctrinally, renders the Old Testament subordinate to the new. You teenagers, you may have just said, what did I, I missed you like 15 verses ago. Listen to these things. Learn what they mean and use them. It's not, you're not learning Christianity to please mom and dad. It's for you. You will stand before Christ. You will not get a stunt double to stand for you at judgment. So learn what it means. The Old Testament is not a lower class of God's word, but it is in the support role of the New Testament now. It is every bit of God's word, but it doesn't lay out enough the plan of salvation. Because if it did, there'd be no need for the New Testament. But there is. And so we understand the Old Testament by the New Testament. We gain force of the New Testament from the Old Testament. I just, I've got to say this. I know I'm going late, but I've got you here. You're stuck. <laughs> I'm almost done. When Ezekiel talks about the Millennial Temple, I don't believe there are blood sacrifices taking place because they're fulfilled in Christ. And here's one of the evidences in Ezekiel 40. There are tables for the sacrifices. Who puts a sacrifice on a table? Can you go to bull? Let's get this guy on this table. They're symbolic. Just that little piece of scripture. Just, I, I, I love it. The Bible is just so clear. Anyway, uh, we're almost done. I said that. We're even more almost done. Verse 40, beware therefore lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers marvel and perish. He's quoting scripture now. For I will work in your days a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. He's quoting Habakkuk the prophet. They're really impressed with this guy. And he is taking an Old Testament verse that talks about a moment in time where Habakkuk didn't understand why God wouldn't judge their enemies. And God says, yeah, you think that's something? I'm going to use these enemies to judge these, my people for their idolatry. Paul comes along and says, yeah, it does mean that, but it also means that there's a consequence to rejecting what God is doing as it was for those in the time of Habakkuk, so it is for this audience that I'm preaching to now. This is fantastic stuff. The, the level of theology and preaching here, uh, they all should have became Christians. Some, some of the Jews do. The, the, we'll get to the next session. The Gentiles are going to eat this up. So I close with this verse. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And Paul has been doing that throughout this section, saying prophecy's got a point to it. You can either be stuck by it or you can be moved by it. Let's pray. Our Father, there's just so much in your word. It really puts us in a position to never be justified in not trusting you. It really puts we who believe in you 
to come to this conclusion, you are worthy of our worship, you are worthy of our trust, you are worthy to suffer for. Things don't go our way, things we live without, the jealousies, the envies, all these things are painful to us, but they're worth it because of you. The pursuit to be like Christ is worth it because you are worthy. Your word is amazing, but you even more. May we get the point from your word. May we understand that it's not this endless prediction of writings, but they have something to do with us right here, right now. If you are a Christian, I just encourage you and myself, always learn, but come to the knowledge. And if you're not a Christian, you should be very much concerned about the one that has something to do with what happens to you when you die. And you will die. And you will stand before Christ Jesus. It is not an option. You can stand before his judgment seat of wrath or you can stand before his throne as one of his own. It's up to you. It is your choice. The Bible calls it in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, it is free will. If you, will, if you choose to come to Christ, do it now. Make this confession. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have broken your law. I have broken your commandments. And I ask you to forgive me. I ask you this day to be not only the one that saves my soul from judgment for breaking your law, but the one who lords over my life, teaching me your commandments, helping me not to break them. I commit my life to you. Now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer this morning, may they not be ashamed of it. May they be very much vocal about it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.